19th century, the city of Chicago, its many sidewalks and buildings and other infrastructure were hoisted using jack screws, which are kind of like heavy-duty versions of the jacks you might use to lift your car to replace a tire. The impetus for this undertaking, which was substantial and paid for with a combination of city and private funds, was Chicago's persistent drainage issues. The city was located at about the same altitude as neighboring Lake Michigan, and the ground upon which it was constructed was consequently pretty swampy to begin with, but became even more so as all those sidewalks and buildings and other human-made environmental objects were installed, putting downward pressure on that swampy soil, which led to widespread and persistent pools of standing water throughout the city. All this standing water led to the spread of diseases like dysentery and typhoid fever, the sorts of issues that tend to arise when there's opportunity for pathogenic beasties to hang out and spread and come into contact with drinking water sources, not to mention essentially every surface in a city. And in 1854, there was an outbreak of cholera, which is also caused by bacteria getting into people's bodies, usually from infected water sources, that killed about 6% of Chicago's total population. So this was an area that was already prone to what's called subsidence, the sinking of land that can be both natural and sparked or amplified by human activity in various ways. And Chicago's development into a densely populated city sped up that process, causing it to sink even further, quite rapidly. And that led to a collection of mostly, but not exclusively, water-related issues, which at this moment in history, the mid-19th century, meant a lot of disease spread due to insufficient water sanitation efforts and infrastructure, and a very hit-or-miss understanding of the mechanisms of the diseases that were carried by that insufficiently treated water. The first brick building to be hoisted in this way was elevated in January of 1858 and required about 200 jack screws to lift it six feet and two inches higher than its previous altitude. And that kicked off a period of remarkably rapid and successful elevations throughout the city, including all sorts of huge, heavy, at times quite wide and cumbersome buildings of all heights and material composition, installing elements of the city's new sewage system around these existing buildings, then covering all of that up with soil, pouring or reinstalling roads and sidewalks atop that soil at the new height, and then raising all of the buildings, filling the space underneath them with soil as they were slowly cranked up to that new baseline. This was not a straightforward effort, and there were several false starts and initial problems that had to be solved, and quite a few pieces of the old city that either couldn't be elevated and thus had to be buried and rebuilt, or that were moved to new locations, placed on rollers, and shifted to different areas, mostly on the outskirts of the city, which allowed them to stay aloft at a new elevation without having to raise them using the jack screw method. Interestingly, some of the elevated buildings, like the Tremont House Hotel, continued to function even as they were raised. Guests continued to frequent the hotel, and some of them apparently didn't even realize it was in the process of being elevated while they were staying there. It was that smooth a process. This citywide process was largely completed in the 1960s, and much of the city as it existed at the time was raised by somewhere between 4 and 14 feet. 
and that provided space for the new sewage system that would help with all those water and waterborne illness issues, while also establishing a new baseline altitude for future developments, which would be able to use that same sewer system, while also being lifted up high enough that flooding and similar water-adjacent low-lying land issues would not be a problem most of the time. What I'd like to talk about today is the issue of subsidence in other cities around the world today and some of the solutions we are seeing deployed to address it. You're listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. Learn more about Let's Know Things, subscribe to receive free email updates, and or become a supporter to receive monthly bonus episodes at letsknowthings.com. The world is packed with sinking cities, a term typically applied to urban centers that are rapidly losing elevation, sinking into the ground due to a combination of natural and human-instigated variables. Chicago is a sinking city, and though all that lifting back in the 19th century helped it with both immediate and potential future sinking-related problems, the Chicago metro area is still primarily built atop clay, which contracts as it's heated. This heat-related deformation hasn't always been much of an issue, but as more buildings have been erected and as the shift in our global climate has led to, on average, higher temperatures for more of the year, the ground beneath Chicago and quite a few other cities worldwide has been slowly but measurably deforming, expanding and contracting and expanding and contracting more rapidly and dramatically due to temperature swings, which in turn has caused building foundations to shift and the surface, the ground upon which residents walk and build and live, to sink downward, which causes damage to those building foundations and to infrastructure that doesn't flex to accommodate this movement past a certain point, like roads and bridges and power lines and basically everything else solid that makes up a city. The majority of sinking cities, those at the top of the list in terms of ground deformation and elevation loss anyway, are located on coasts. And because about 2.15 billion people live in near coastal zones, and around 898 million live within the most directly impacted low elevation coastal areas around the world, both of those numbers steadily rising as more people move closer to the world's on average wealthier and more opportunity rich coastal areas. This is a significant and growing issue because the costs and dangers associated with such areas are also increasing, in part because larger populations tend to amplify those very issues. A study published in 2022 that looked at the subsidence rate in 99 coastal cities between 2015 and 2020, intending to get a more accurate sense of just how rapidly they're sinking, found that while sinkage is occurring most rapidly across Asia, it's also happening on all the other inhabited continents, all of them except non-city having Antarctica. And while the latent properties of these areas are partly to blame, human activity, especially the extraction of groundwater, is often a primary culprit causing these cities to sink. Even more alarming in some ways is that while experts are already worried about rising sea levels as ice caps and glaciers and other stores of water located around the world melt due to higher average temperatures and more frequent and dramatic heat waves, the rate of subsidence in most of these sinking cities is higher than the rate of sea level rise. 
In other words, sea level rise is already causing insurance companies to leave some coastal areas and government coffers to run dry as they attempt to shore up and protect regions that are being lost to global oceans. But it would seem that many cities that are subsiding in this way are sinking faster than the water around them is rising. So the two opposite movements in parallel are amplifying those sea level rise associated issues, but the issue of subsidence, which has not been as big a focus in mainstream conversations so far, would seem to be the larger issue in many cases, and it's not terribly well addressed in most cities where it is such an issue. Important to note is that just as subsidence is not a single cause problem, since it's the consequence of both natural features and human activity, it's also not a single consequence issue. Just as Chicago suffered from both flooding-related and disease-related problems tied to subsidence, so too do these other sinking cities suffer a portfolio of associated ailments. Probably the most immediate concern for most sinking cities today is similar to that of sea level rise. While it may be common to imagine that rising sea levels will someday leave threatened cities underwater 100% of the time, like a modern Atlantis, the real issue today is that as the oceans get higher, closer to the level of coastal land, it takes smaller and smaller perturbances in that water for it to surge inland, covering more and more territory. So buildings and roads that previously flooded once every 10 years will flood every year. Those that were previously inconvenienced by minor floods will be severely, perhaps permanently damaged by deeper and more intense floods that stick around longer. And areas further inland that were previously untouched, protected from surging ocean waters by the land between them and the ocean will start to flood despite never having experienced flooding previously, and thus not being built to standards that would allow them to survive even relatively minor flooding. Again, the combination of sea level rise and subsidence is basically doubling the impact of this sort of issue, causing more intense and regular flooding in these regions earlier than was previously predicted, and thus messing with or totally screwing over plans made by city governance to handle these sorts of problems. I mentioned earlier that the consumption of groundwater is often a component of this problem, and the general idea is that when modern humans move into a new region, they typically drill wells and start pumping water from deep underground, moving that underground water above ground for all sorts of uses, from drinking to filling our toilet to watering our lawns to manufacturing-related applications. Moving all that water from underground to above ground is similar in terms of consequences to moving a bunch of rock or soil from underground to above ground. It causes the remaining ground to sink because there's less stuff down there to hold everything else up at the surface to its existing level. Some previously sinking cities like Tokyo have been able to largely halt their subsidence by reducing the pumping of groundwater, Tokyo officials having implemented regulations to address the issue in the early 1960s, which brought their sinking issues to an end about a decade later. Shanghai did something similar, but instead of halting all groundwater pumping, they required that these underground supplies of water be refilled after extraction, so the amount of water down there stays roughly equal, even if some is pumped for various uses in some cases. Another way to accomplish essentially the same end, and a solution that seems to have not quite halted, but to have significantly slowed sinkage in Shanghai in the years since that policy was implemented. 
Houston in the U.S. also introduced groundwater remediation efforts in the 1970s, which seemed to have helped slow its sinkage, as did the Silicon Valley area in the 1960s, the fastest sinking cities in the world today. According to that new study, and other recent research into the same, are Tianjin, Semarang, and Jakarta, the first of which is located in China, and the latter two of which are located in Indonesia. These three cities are sinking almost 15 times faster than global mean sea levels are rising. And this is a big part of why the Indonesian government decided to move its capital from Jakarta to a new city the government is building on the island of Borneo. It's estimated that one-third of Jakarta could be completely submerged, essentially 100% of the time, by 2050. And there are about 10.5 million people living in Jakarta. So that means a lot of people whose homes and businesses and neighborhoods are prone to flooding regularly today. And all of that may be gone completely, lost to the ocean by mid-century, which by any measure is a highly destabilizing sequence of events and will almost certainly lead to a large number of lost lives and a huge sum of lost wealth, not to mention the secondary issues that may arise as all those people moving out of these no longer habitable areas move elsewhere stressing the systems in those new areas, including but not limited to the need for more water, which may need to be pumped from underground sources, causing more urban centers to sink or to sink faster. Jakarta is not alone in facing this heightened risk. There are many other big population centers around the world that are prone to similar outcomes, including but not limited to Chittagong and Dhaka in Bangladesh, Manila in the Philippines, Karachi in Pakistan, Kolkata and Mumbai in India, Guangzhou in China, Ho Chi Minh City in Vietnam, Bangkok in Thailand, Miami and New York City and New Orleans in the U.S., and Mexico City in Mexico, alongside many, many other cities that are built on naturally subsidence-prone land are draining that land's groundwater or oil or other, or other underground resources, are building heavy infrastructure on the ground which causes it to settle and sink, and in some cases are built atop or near shifting tectonic plates that rumble continuously enough that the sediment is pretty much always naturally compacting. The ground always deforming just a little bit, and all that adds up over time, causing the same or similar issues. The most immediate consequences of what we're seeing in many of these areas is that insurance companies are leaving, because it's no longer a winning bet to be operating in increasingly disaster-prone regions. And that is likely to spread to other industries that no longer want to invest in assets that may be underwater part-time or all the time before they are expected to recoup their investment cost. People will either leave these areas fleeing for more secure ground, or they will stay, putting their lives and their wealth of various kinds at risk as they do so. Poorer people, so far at least, have tended to bear a disproportionate amount of the burden associated with these sorts of shifts, and resultantly the human and economic costs associated with impoverished populations are tending to increase, as is the number of impoverished people in afflicted areas because of that aforementioned risk to wealth, an accompanying lack of security, and the increasingly difficult time people and businesses are having insuring their assets in these areas, especially against disasters like floods. 
There are efforts to mitigate subsidence underway in some of these regions, including the use of advanced tools like LIDAR and satellite imagery to pinpoint the primary regional causes of sinkage and the passing of policies like groundwater regulations introduced in several sinking cities in the 20th century that then help halt or slow their city's subsidence rate. Many cities are reorienting around an adaptation strategy, too, in part because seawalls and similar solutions don't work as well when it's not just sea level rise you have to worry about, and in part because the costs are more moderate than completely revamping a city's infrastructure to account for all that sinking. In most cases, this means deploying a series of systemic changes alongside relatively light-touch infrastructural ones, so increasing the ground's capacity to sponge up water, rerouting, replacing, or removing water-based infrastructure that can reduce a city's capacity to absorb rainfall, planting trees and similar water breaks in flood-prone coastal areas, introducing early warning systems and evacuation plans in case of severe flooding, and overall attempting to allow floodwaters to roll through with the minimum amount of damage rather than struggling and failing to keep it out entirely. We are in the early days of this sort of adaptation and mitigation evolution, though, and a lot of what we're trying now likely won't work as well as we had hoped. Not everywhere it's tried, at least. And other solutions will almost certainly emerge in the coming years that turn out to be much more effective and possibly cost-effective, too. The sheer expansiveness and significance of this problem, though, will necessarily spark the innovation of a variety of approaches, systems, and technologies, and it's possible we will see a flurry of new moderating elements deployed and installed in the coming years alongside a slew of fresh tragedies in cities that suffer essentially continuous problems related to subsidence and flooding. In the meantime... The book I'd like to recommend today is called Once Upon a Tome, The Misadventures of a Rare Bookseller by Oliver Darkshire. This book is primarily narrative in nature, so part of what's interesting about it is the characters involved and the narrator's take on the world that he is stepping into, that world being that of rare booksellers. But it also does a pretty good job of introducing different topics and information related to that industry, into that field, to that trade, to the people who are at times quite obsessively involved in it, and thus serves as a pretty good rare book collecting and selling 101 book, in addition to being a fun read because of the characters. It's primarily focused on one particular bookshop, which has been working in this space and specializing in this space for a very long time, and which itself is full of colorful characters. But I would say, especially if you don't know anything or much about the world of rare books and the collecting of them and the industry that's grown around them, this will prove to be a very educational as well as entertaining read. Now, if any of that sounds interesting to you, consider picking up a copy of Once Upon a Tome by Oliver Darkshire. You can subscribe to receive email updates, find show notes and other such content, and support this show financially, receiving additional bonus episodes as a thank you at letsknowthings.com. Learn more about me and my work at colin.io. Subscribe to my other news-focused podcast, One Sentence News, wherever you get your pods, or at onesentencenews.com. And say howdy on social media. I'm at Colin is my name on Instagram and Twitter and Colin Wright on Facebook and YouTube. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Colin Wright, 
and I'll talk to you again next week. Thank you.